Hello and welcome to this men's health conversation with neuropsychopharmacologist Professor David Nutt. Professor Nutt specializes in research around drugs and compounds that affect the brain and the main focus of today's conversation was alcohol. We discussed the history of alcohol as a pro-social lubricant, why people drink, why people want to stop drinking and why people can't stop drinking, as well as discussing whether or not there's a middle way to be found between the two. This conversation was very much out of my wheelhouse and as such I found it incredibly informative and very entertaining and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Professor Nell, thank you very much for joining me. It's really nice to be here, thank you. We are right in the midst as we record this of uh, the the, the time of the year where many people make that kind of pilgrimage to reduce or control their their alcohol intake, dry January. Um, before we get into why people do that, why they should do that, maybe why they shouldn't do that, why do we drink? Well, we drink because humans have always drunk. When you try to look at what makes a human different from other, other animals, other species, one of the uh, major differences is that we do like to change our consciousness and it's probable either alcohol or magic mushrooms were the first consciousness changing chemicals because the early hominids would be wandering around picking up rotting fruit and thinking wow that was an unexpected impact it had on me so alcohol has been part of humanity um, really since people started understanding that they could have altered consciousness there's a fascinating theory by Johann Hariri, the sapiens man, who, well, it's not his theory. His theory was that humans became uh, domesticated. We stopped being nomadic. We became agricultural and, and, and static because we wanted to grow wheat to make bread. But there's another American anthropologist called Edward Slingerland who says, no, 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 we started growing wheat in order to make beer because Humans basically like to drink alcohol, and uh, the reason we do that is because it, it basically it helps us interact with other humans. It helps us chill out. It helps deaden the pain and misery of life. All sorts of different reasons, and it's been around for a long time. And, and it's really very much soaked into the uh, to the nature of humanity for most all cultures. Do you think there's a reason that that wasn't kind of selected out by natural selection? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think it's because there are positive effects of alcohol as well as negative effects. And the, and the, and the reason I say that is that 80% in the UK, 80% of the adult population drink alcohol. Most of them are not dependent. So they're getting something from alcohol. It's not that they have to drink it, they're choosing to drink it. And it, I mean, I think it's quite likely that the majority of people listening to this podcast will have met partners through engaging in a social drink of alcohol. Almost all of us will have drunk alcohol at parties. Why do we do that? Because it helps us get through that particular anxiety that humans have when they're meeting other members of the same species that they don't know particularly well, or who, in the, in the case of Christmas, who are people they're forced to see of their families they don't particularly want to see. Uh, alcohol is a, it's a social lubricant, better than any other we know of at present. So that's why it's used, because it's, um, it serves this social bonding function. And again, this man, Slingerland, thought alcohol was really central to the coming together of the small human tribes that were facing near extinction during the Ice Age. And, and they had to get together in order to get genetic diversity and reproduce. 
And alcohol, he believes, helped them do that. So it helped break down those barriers between tribes and, and encourage um, growth and creativity and, you know, and population growth, etc. So if that theory is correct, that, that sounds like we developed agriculture as a byproduct of the, the pro-social benefits of booze. That's his argument, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> It's worth reading his book, actually. It's quite compelling. Because they were interesting, that, in a technical sense, an interesting genetic uh, event occurred which distinguishes us from other primates, which is it we became able, better able to metabolize alcohol. And therefore, we could get the, the, both the pleasurable effects with... We could get the pleasurable effects with less of the negative effects. So we're more alcohol tolerant than other primates. And that may be, you know, a facet in human evolution that's been useful. So what happens to our bodies when we do consume alcohol? Yeah, well, that's a complicated question. Um, it, it, very many things. And that's part of the, so the, the problem with alcohol is it, it's not just a social lubricant. It's also a toxin. And when you, the first thing you notice when you drink alcohol is that you, it, if it's particularly if it's pure alcohol or, or, or strong alcohol or distilled alcohol, it burns your mouth, it burns your throat. If you rub it on the skin, it stings because it's toxic. It, it, it irritates and damages um, cells. And it does that wherever it goes. It goes into the stomach and damages the stomach cells. It goes to the liver, damages the liver cells, goes into the brain, damages the brain cells. And on the way, it just happens to damage the blood cells and the, and the heart, etc. So, so alcohol is, is a sort of global toxin. But when it gets in the brain, it does something different and it starts to promote neurotransmitters in the brain, which give us the effects that we are seeking from it. And what happens to our bodies when we stop drinking? What, what's the timeline like for somebody who is a, a casual, a recreational, enjoys the, the, the pro-social lubricant that is alcohol regularly? And they, they've come into January, they've gone cold turkey. What's happening to their body right now? Well, it's recovering, and different parts of the body recover at different rates. I mean, you know, obviously there are damages that can be caused by alcohol which are irrecoverable. You know, if, it's, if you've destroyed your liver, then it isn't going to regrow. But actually, if you haven't completely destroyed it, there is a chance of regrowth if you've damaged your heart, etc. So, But for the average social drinker who decides that they've overdone it a bit during you know, the Christmas period, stopping alcohol. If you're not going into withdrawal, you probably haven't done a lot of damage to yourself, in which case, basically, your body resets itself. On average, it takes, for a heavy drinker, it takes about a week or so for the liver to, to get back to, to a full functioning or, or the toxicity of the, of the liver to, uh, to fully recover. Um, so that's a kind of reasonable estimate, you know, a week or so. Oh wow, that's a that's a much shorter timeline than I than I would have envisaged. Are there any other parts of our our biology that are, that are affected that could take longer? How about the brain? Well, the the, yes, the brain's a bit of a tricky one um, in the sense that if you once you damage your brain, it is hard to recover. So it's, the brain doesn't regenerate in the same way as the liver. So yes, so we we are particularly concerned about about brain damage, particularly from heavy binge drinking, because that might end up being something that is permanent yeah i think that there's there's possibly a misconception about alcohol um especially as it pertains to what we can what we can actually handle our drinking tolerance and i think maybe due to previous legislation and guidance over 
um, the difference between the, the recommended of alcohol for males and females mm-hmm. and how our body mass actually impacts the amount of alcohol that we can we can tolerate. Is there any basis to the idea that, you know, a bigger guy, a guy who works out, carries a little bit of muscle mass, can can sort of firm his drink a little bit better? Or is that nonsense? No, it's, it's, it's true. It's, it's complicated, though. You have to distinguish the acute effects and the chronic effects. So, yeah, so men basically can cope, even a man the same weight as a woman, will have lower levels of alcohol in their blood for the given uh, intake of alcohol because men have less body fat. A higher proportion of females' body weight is made up of fat. They have breasts, for instance. And alcohol doesn't go into fat. Alcohol goes into water. So if you've got bigger volume of water, like a man has your blood level, you know, there's a bigger space in which to dissolve the alcohol, so your alcohol levels are lower. So if you drink the same amount, men have lower levels. But then you have this paradox that actually women, interestingly, are less harmed by alcohol than men. And then we don't, and that's why, by the way, that's why the recommended limits are now the same for men and women, because although women get higher levels for a given drink, they often drunk, drink as much as men, but but also there's, a, there's some kind of protective effect in women. We think that might be estrogens, but, or it might just be psychological. It might just be that women don't get into fights, etc., when they're drunk mm. as much as men do. And a, a lot of the damage from alcohol comes not from the actual alcohol itself, but the behavioural disinhibition and the stupidity that seems to be particularly common in men to do daft things when they're drunk, to show off or to drive the cars too fast, etc. And then you get a lot of secondary injuries. So so deaths from alcohol are often due to misadventure, rather immediate misadventure, particularly young people. I mean, we've seen a spate of accidents over Christmas of, of cars driving into trees and rivers, etc. And often they're three or four young men, and often they're drunk. And, and, and you know, there's a, that's, a, that's an irretrievable casualty from drinking. So, so, so that's why men tend to have greater risk from drinking, because... More, it's mostly because they do stupid things, get into fights, they get brain injury, or they crash their cars, etc. Yeah, that would be my, you know, my my sort of layman's assumption. Looking at the statistics, is the the the, the increase in mortality rate due to alcohol for men is probably less to do with. Um, toxicity and much more to do with the what I would consider to be the true danger of alcohol the as you said the, the disinhibition is there any way to limit that or is this obviously it's unique person to person but what's the point at which alcohol moves from being a pro-social lubricant to the mother load of bad ideas yeah well it, it varies depending on how tolerant you are but f- let's just stick with someone who is and a kind of sensible average drinker who doesn't have massive tolerance, then after about the third drink, the th- you know the third unit of alcohol, say, then you begin to get alcohol interfering with decision-making processes in your brain, which uh, are quite important. And uh, so, for instance, when you get blood alcohol levels of, say, 150 milligrams per cent, that's twice the legal drinking limit, you're beginning then to seriously impair your uh judgment systems in your brain you're you're beginning to impair your memory systems Uh, and that's when people lose control and of course that's actually what happens in binge drinking because the majority of binge drinkers don't set set out to be really drunk all the time they set out to drink normally but because alcohol reaches a level 
that switches off that decision making. They, the intention to stay controlled in your drinking is dissolved by the alcohol, and then it all spirals up out of control. And then, and then you know you have no idea how much you've drunk, and you get into all sorts of problems. So it's that dis, that ability of alcohol to switch off your reason and your intentions that is really problematic. Yeah, I've been teetotal for many, many years, but I and what this is one of the main reasons is that. I used to have a saying that one leads to two, but two leads to 10. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, you may be interested to know that we've done a bit of research on what that switch is. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but there's some interesting, um, well, a medicine was developed. A medicine was developed called Narmaphene. Uh, it, it's um, in, uh, an opiate receptor blocker, which is, it's, uh, was designed to block the, endorphins in the brain and, and we did some research suggesting that actually that's that's what happens and that if you take nalmaphene it the ability of alcohol or the endorphin release that is caused by alcohol doesn't turn on your motive system to keep going so uh we have a little you know beginnings of a handle on how to help people stick within those couple one to two drinks limit if they want to mm, yeah Talk to me about the the implications of the uh, the implications in the usages of, of that compound. How how does that work, or how would how would someone apply that, or how will that maybe one day be applied to people who enjoy a drink? Well, the sad truth is the, the very sad truth is it was licenses in medicine ten years ago. It was a, it was a, this is truly a, a really sad story. It was, the, the data was generated at, at a vast expense. You know, huge trials done. It got a it got European and, and British approval. And more than that, the drug was actually funded. So many new drugs are allowed, but they're not actively funded by the government. Usually the government says, well, it's up to a doctor to make a decision. But in this case, the government said, we will fund the prescription, any prescription of Narmaphene. And it wasn't used. And the company's just withdrawn it. And that really, to my mind, is an. It's, it's a, I wrote a. I wrote an editorial in in, in a health journal about it. It was it was an, an example of kind of the perverse way in which we view alcohol problems. It wasn't prescribed because GPs didn't want to prescribe it, or didn't believe in it, or didn't know about it. But despite us trying to educate them, it was a terrible missed opportunity. Talk me through it. I really want to circle back around to that. But just for context, talk me through the the implications for someone or the you know the the real world actions and effects of narmavine for someone who had been prescribed it had they been prescribed it how would that work well what it does is it blocks the endorphin receptors in parts of your brain we uh, when you first drink alcohol starts to turn on the gaba system in the brain and that's what produces the sociability relaxes you takes away that social anxiety. Then if you keep on drinking, your second unit begins to release endorphins. And endorphins turn on the dopamine system. And the dopamine system is the drive system. That's what gets you up and going. It motivates you. It's a system that's activated by drugs like cocaine. So when people start to, you know, you see people, people start to get really high and happy and chatty and energetic on alcohol. That's because you've got endorphin release and dopamine release. And and then that sense of wow, you know, of liking is one of the reasons why people then want more because as you know, you may not know, but most you probably do know, that cocaine is very peakish. You take it, it goes down, you crash, you take more. So it's the same with alcohol. You release dopamine, you want more dopamine. 
and then you lose control. But normophene, by blocking the, the endorphin effect, reduces that tendency to lose control, to, to be over-desirous over of more drink. If you're enjoying this content, you can watch or listen ad-free on the Men's Health app by joining the Men's Health Squad today. Once you're in the squad, you will have access to tons of exclusive content, including regular member Q&As, interviews, and access to our world-class training platform featuring plans for every level and for any goal. Simply head over to hearstmagazines.co.uk forward slash mh-mag or hit the link below. So in a real world scenario, it, would this be something that would be prescribed to someone and they would continue drinking, but it would just remove that part of them that can't stay in control for one exactly, of a better term? Exactly. It was a very interesting drug because it was a, you, you didn't have to take it every day. You could just take it when you were going to go drinking. It turns out it would, that actually most people were drinking most days, so most people did take it most days. In fact, <laughs> clinically, we often said just take it every day because you won't forget that way. But you could actually take it once you started drinking and still get to still get that beneficial effect. Yeah. This sounds like somewhat of a you know I, I, I'm talking kind of from the experience of, of someone who was once a, an 18, 19, 21 year old lad. Mm -hmm. Uh, somewhat of a miracle drug. Why do you think that didn't, why do you think doctors didn't prescribe that? Well, this is classic joke. What is the definition of an alcoholic? It's someone who drinks more than their doctor. <laughs> and lots of doctors drink. <laughs> it is a, it is a, I think this, it's a really interesting question. And I think it's, you know, it's very seriously, is that every, because so many people drink, most people who drink don't want to think that there's some, you know, they, they, they want, most people want to think that it's, they're controlling their drinking because they have that ability. And so they tend to look down on people that don't have that ability. Now, to my mind, that's ridiculous because almost no one sets out on a drinking career wanting to damage themselves. But some people can't control themselves. We don't know why some people end up being bingers and some not. But but it's going to be a, there's a biological basis to it or a psychological basis. So we sh we should be actually treating people who lose control sympathetically. But society doesn't. Society blames drinkers. It doesn't actually try to help them. And I think that stigma um, pervades all aspects. I mean, we see it in medicine all the time. I mean, it's embarrassing. But I'm a doctor. It's embarrassing sometimes to be in. It's, it, to be in a casualty, and I mean, you know, okay, you've got a casualty on a Friday night full of drunk people, and but they're often, it's again, they're treated often by the staff as as being second class, and often they don't get treated at all. You know, they're triaged out and allowed to sort of, you know, fall asleep on the streets or whatever because because it, it's seen as their own fault. But in, to my mind, in a, a society that is actually advertising and, and encouraging people to drink. It yeah. is pretty immoral not to take the fact that some people can't control the drinking seriously. So I think the answer to your question is it complex and stigmatizing and uh, alcohol drinking is seen as something you, sh you should be able to control, even though we yeah. know scientifically that people can't, and we know why many of them can't. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess top line, it, you could see it as, well, this thing's optional. So if you're worried that you're going to do too much, just don't do it at all. But we know when the rubber hits the road, it just doesn't work like that, right? Exactly, you know. And, and alcohol is a peculiarly problematic drug in the sense that it does it does take away your, you know, it erodes your desire to control it in a way which is different 
for drugs like cocaine and, and, and heroin, yeah, you kind of, you, when you've used them, you know, you might want more, but you can still, you still got the capacity to think about what you're doing. Whereas with alcohol, it takes away that capacity. So it makes you, you know, even succumb more, even more easily to those uh, desires. Yeah, rationally, you should stop drinking, but the rational part of you is checked out on account of the drinking. That's much better put. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, from a research-based point of view, what are the most successful avenues people can uh, pursue to reduce or eliminate their alcohol consumption if they're so inclined? Well, I think the answer is to to actually know what you're doing. I have this um, this sort of, I suppose it's a, I don't know what you'd call it, you know, it's a little sort of maxim that I would share, I share with everyone. You know, that there are five things that you should know about yourself. And four of them you do know. You know, you know your weight. <laughs> you, know, you, you know your waist circumference. You know your blood pressure. And you know your cholesterol, right? Those are four things is that most people really do know about and should know about. But the fifth one is how much you drink. So you should know how much you drink. And... For those five variables, you should generally, unless you're very thin, be trying to reduce all of them. Get your weight down, get your waist circumference down, get your blood pressure down, get your cholesterol down, get your drinking down. So, so knowing what you're drinking, monitoring what you're drinking, is the, the necessary first step to working out whether you're drinking too much. Which, and if you're actually beginning to do that, you almost certainly are, because otherwise you wouldn't be motivated to do it. So that's the first stage. The second stage then is that it's pretty simple, really. It's, all you've got to do is don't ever take a drink that doesn't give you value. And you'll discover if you take if you do a drink diary over a week, you'll discover quite a lot of the drinks that actually you drank just because because you could, not because you wanted to, not because they actually gave you any pleasure. I mean, particularly if you're a binger, a binger after the second or third one, you don't even know how many you've drunk. They haven't done anything other than make you more and more intoxicated. So try to eliminate drinks which don't give you clearly defined benefits. And another tip, another important tip is don't drink alone. As I said at the beginning, alcohol is the ultimate social drug. Uh, and it works best when other people are around. And, uh, and if, you're, if other people aren't there, then drinking is essentially just deadening your brain. It's numbing yourself. Never do that. Uh, and I and never, if you're feeling stressed and, and distressed, and never use alcohol to numb it, because um, in the end, you don't deal with the problem, and you may it may be worse when you're in withdrawal. Hmm. What are the alternatives for people in that latter situation that have become so conditioned to, you know, to reach for a drink after a hard day, etc.? Well, exercise is probably the best. You know. Um, that also <laughs> releases endorphins, and maybe that's why some people exercise too much. But but at least it doesn't damage your brain in the same way as alcohol. Uh, um, other forms of relaxation, you know, you know, a lot of people turn to yoga, um, breathing exercises, saunas, you know, hot tubs, you know, those sorts of things. They can they will produce similar kinds of relaxation to alcohol without the mm. toxicity. That's interesting. I think if more people took your advice um uh, your previous advice about paying attention you know don't don't have a drink that isn't going to serve you and actually started really looking at 
well, what am I looking to extract from this drink right now? They would soon be able to extrapolate from that. Well, actually, it's this, this and that, and I can get this in other places. But alcohol is obviously readily available and very visible. Yeah, and, and this is, of course, one of the campaigns I've been banging on about for, for, for years, really. We have... Not we, we have become accustomed, we have been conditioned, and we've certainly got a vastly powerful advertising industry which is driving us to believe that you can only socialise if you're drinking. And, uh, and, and that's right. And we, what we need to have is we need to have alternative drinks available in social uh, in socialising places, particularly pubs. I mean, I'm quite a fan of a pub. I'm quite a fan of the wine bar. I just think we need drinks there that aren't alcohol so that people can actually have safe places to socialise, but have an alternative drink which facilitates sociability without the harms of alcohol. And that's what we've been trying to develop over the last 10 years. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about that. What what are the... Because obviously you're not talking here about going having making Diet Coke available in a, in a pub. You're talking about compounds that have a similar pro-social effect, right? What, where are we at with that? Well, what we've, we set up a company called Gabba Labs to, to, to target the Gabba system because we know from lots of evidence it, it's the, the pro-social effects of alcohol are mediated through the, it getting into the brain and turning on the Gabba system. And the Gabba system is the, the sort of architect of calming and sociability in the brain. Um, and we've, I, my ambition uh, is to develop a small molecule. We call it Arcarel. It's a bit, a bit naff, really, but it's Arcarel is to alcohol what Candorel is to candy. The, 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 the effect, the taste in the case of Candorel, the effect in the case of Arcarel, but with much less of the harms. So that's that's something we'd like to make and are making as as and we can. Our vision is to basically. It'll be the intel inside. Instead of having ethanol in your drinks, you'll have alcohol in your drinks, and then you'll have uh, social effects with much less of the harm. And you won't have all the other problems that alcohol generates because it doesn't matter how much of alcohol you took, you wouldn't start to engage those other systems that cause the problems of alcohol, like the dopamine or the endorphin or the glutamate system. But on the, in, on the way to that, we've started to explore the concept of making herbal drinks because you know, there's a lot of biochemistry and many many herbs and quite a lot of you know herbs make substances which target the GABA system and interestingly some of those herbs have been used for thousands of years to calm people and to relax people so we've we've pulled together a, a, a cocktail of, of various herbs some you know Chinese medicine Ayurvedic medicine traditional western herbs as well which will be used you know by the poor who couldn't afford alcohol to <laughs> to have those effects back in the Middle Ages, put them together in a drink we call Sentia, which is uh, essentially a, a functional drink. It's like a, it gives you a mild alcohol, like a fat, mild relaxation, but you can't get drunk on it. And that's there now to, to, to prove the concept that you can actually have a functional alternative to alcohol, which is which is I think, helped people become interested in, in the bigger uh, um, vision of actually trying to replace alcohol completely with alcohol. Mm, yeah, ironically, so the, you know, you, you use the use the analogy of, of candoro to candy. So it would, it's essentially like a, a, what a sweetener is to sugar. And ironically, most sweeteners are alcohol. Um, so there's, there's a sweet irony in that for me, pun unintended. But um, are these alternatives that you're working on are 
are they they safer from a, a toxicity standpoint? Oh, they will be. They would have to be, be because they will go through. When we've we got we're close to getting our target molecule now, and then it has to go through food safety testing. And and we know that if you put alcohol through food safety testing, it would fail. It's not generally known that if if, if you discovered alcohol today, ah, this could be a wonderful ingredient. I could make a fantastic sherry trifle for Christmas. How much alcohol would be allowed to, uh, you know, what would be the safe limit of alcohol? Put it through food safety testing. It comes out as a glass of wine a year. <laughs> uh, so that tells you that we actually basically turn a very blind eye to the to the toxicity of mm. alcohol. So what what we will be doing is putting our molecules through that safety testing and I, I, you know, we can't say yet, but they would, to pass that safety testing, they'd have to be hundreds of times less harmful than alcohol because alcohol is so toxic. Yeah, you're really up against a compound that's kind of got a free pass historically. It's been grandfathered in. Totally, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, and, uh, and also got a huge industry behind it as well. <laughs> if you're enjoying this content, you can watch or listen ad-free on the Men's Health app by joining the Men's Health Squad today. Once you're in the squad, you will have access to tons of exclusive content, including regular member Q&As, interviews, and access to our world-class training platform featuring plans for every level and for any goal. Simply head over to hearstmagazines.co.uk forward slash mh-mag or hit the link below. I, I often think about the you know the, the twelve steps of AA, mm. and um, one, if not, I, be, I believe it's the very first step of Alcohol Anonymous is kind of conceding the fact that you have a problem and that this problem is is bigger than you. It's bigger than you, and I, mm. people think that this problem is alcohol, but I tend to think in modernity it's actually the alcohol industry. That's the bit, you know. That's the that's the Goliath that you're facing. It is, it is, and it, I mean, it, and it's extraordinarily effective. I mean, it, it's it's there's you know every government that has tried to do anything about alcohol taxes, alcohol advertising has been defeated or given in or been bought off or, or what, who knows why. But it, it's um, it's an industry that is. is it's still very prominent, and it's um, they're very clever. I mean, they've learnt the lessons of the tobacco industry fiasco. They don't say alcohol doesn't cause harm. They just say if you drink responsibly, you will come to little harm, which is true. But as we already discussed in this program, the nature of alcohol is to for many people, too many people, to dissolve that ability to be responsible. So yep, it's, that's uh, the, it's catch no, 22. Do you think alcohol companies themselves will become interested in this, this, um, the, the work you're doing? Do you think they'll see eventually that there is an alternative there that's, they that's are marketable that for them? I've seen it. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. How the, I mean, I've been in this field. I, the first I concept I put out about replacing alcohol, I was up, I was working on a government program called the Foresight Program, the Department of Trade and Industry, 25-year vision of the relationship of drugs, of brain science to, to drugs and alcohol. And that was in 2004. And we wrote, we wrote a report which said, given that it's impossible to find 
antidotes to all the toxic effects of alcohol. We should be looking for an alternative. That's when the idea first came up. So I've been doing this now for 20 years nearly. And uh, in the beginning, the drinks industry said, well, this is ridiculous, you know, it can't be done and alcohol's so cheap and it. alcohol's good and alcohol has health benefits, you know. It protects middle-aged men if you drink red wine and all that sort of stuff. But in the last 10 years, we've seen a shift. We've seen, particularly in young middle-aged people, saying, well, hang on a sec, I don't want to drink as much as I used to. It impairs my work the next day. When you have kids, you don't want to have a hangover. Certainly not, you know, when you've got to get up and go to work. So we're seeing this low-no uh, initiative developing, people changing their attitude to drinking. And there's no question, you know, drinks industry sales uh, uh, and the consumption of alcohol has absolutely plateaued. So now they're aware of it. They know something needs to change. And and we've been approached by a number of drinks companies to, to work with them or to sell us our ideas to them. Uh, and we've resisted it because our biggest fear would be we would be bought up and then they'd just discard it. So that's why our, our current sort of business plan is to make a, an ingredient which we license out to any any and every company rather than just go into bed with one company. And I, I think it will be, I think it will, will take off because um, we've seen that non-alcoholic alternatives, you know, like seed lip, which is, you know, essentially a, a gin flavoured, uh, you know, uh, flavoured water effectively has become popular, mm. even though it hasn't any functional effects. And most people who use Sentia find it does have an effect and they rather enjoy that effect. And they find it is the, it's, the, it's what they were looking for, something that gives them something of alcohol, but not uh, not all the complications. That's very much what interests me. Talk me through a night out on Sentia, on an alcohol replacement. What does that look mm. like compared to yeah. compared to beer? Well, it's less going to the toilet generally because you don't drink quite so much. <laughs> I mean, so Sentia is is a is a is a kind of powerful, uh, quite an interesting flavour, and um, most people don't drink it neat, but you can drink it neat. Most people put it in with a mixer, and and, it, and that gives it a you know great versatility because you know if you like tonic, which I tend to drink it with tonic, others put it into coke or they put it into apple juice or orange juice so whatever you like to drink you can put in your shot of scent here and then you can drink it like a long drink you know, like you might drink a rum and coke you'd drink a scent and coke and you drink it over the same time and and you'd get an effect and the difference would be that the next scent and coke would give you the same effect as the first whereas the second rum and coke would add to the effect because alcohol hangs around in the brain much longer than sentia. So the effects of alcohol build up and build up and build up, whereas the effects of sentia go down and you basically you get to a, a lower level of effect. Um, you don't you don't get a massive increase in effect as you take more and more more and more drinks. Uh, you, you, so, and that's, that means that you never lose control because you know, you know you've never disrupted your decision-making processes. And uh, what is that effect? What's the felt experience of a, of a Sentier and Coke? Yeah, I have to say, I don't drink it with Coke because usually I drink in the evenings and the Coke keeps me awake. So <laughs> some people, I mean, obviously a lot of people use Coke with alcohol because they want to stay awake. So, so for many people, 
alcohol in the evening is, is too sedating. So they they drink a caffeinated drink to keep them awake. So, but if I drink it with um, with tonic, for instance, you know, well, the effect is it's, it's um, the effect comes on in about the same time as as alcohol, in about you know seven ten minutes. You begin to get a little bit of that sort of slight relaxation in the jaw that you get with alcohol. Um, if you notice that, maybe you, you get a slight relaxation in your tummy. And then at about 10 minutes, you you find yourself looking at people a bit more and, and maybe chatting a bit more. And, and my friends say, quiet down, David, you're loud. Because <laughs> I'm loud anyway, but I get a little bit louder. And you find yourself just basically being slightly more humorous and more engaged so it's a, it's that social sort of uh, repartee which uh, in, is enhanced particularly if, if others are drinking it and that's just an important point to make that uh, there's a virtuous circle between relaxing and social interaction because social interaction is actually what we really want yeah when we go out with other people we want social interaction but the anxiety the stress of, of meeting, particularly meeting strangers, can li- will limit that, so we don't get it. When you break through that that barrier of being anxious or, or, or tense, then you get the social interaction, and that then uh, is what's what is what makes the evening go well. Yeah, I think that's what most of us are looking for, right? Just to take that edge off, not to end up in a stupor tomorrow, running around with traffic cones in our head in the evening. Exactly. Exactly. Very, very interesting. Do you see a future where drinks like Sentia completely replace alcohol? I mean, I'd be very hopeful for one. Yeah. I don't know. It's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, we're not advocating abolition of alcohol. That was tried in America and Sweden and Norway in the 1920s, and it, it didn't particularly in the US, created more problems than it solved. What we want is people to have an alternative. And then I think a lot of people, over maybe over several generations, will slowly morph uh, in, in that direction. Uh, and in the, in the end, it'll, it may go like smoking. And, you know, it'll be down to about 10, 15% of the people smoking uh, because you don't need to. You can actually, you know, if you want, you can vape or you can snake snooze or whatever. So I think, in, you know, we were looked, we, it, it, certainly in my lifetime, it's not going to take over from alcohol. But it, what I, when I die, I want to know that we've left a legacy that will allow the next generation to at least have a bit more choice in, in how they socialise. Uh, fingers crossed, I'm right. What would be your tips, hacks, tricks, advice, whatever you want to call it, for listeners who are trying to trying endeavoring to cut down to zero over the month of january but as you said before that's an indication of the fact that maybe they need to cut down full stop what are your you know what are your what's your top line for those guys well i think i think yeah i I think i'm i'm quite sympathetic to to try january because i think you know it's uh if you can achieve it is through willpower alone. That's a, that's actually a good sign. You know, it shows that you're not alcoholic dependent. Um, you shouldn't beat yourself up too much if you fail. Uh, and I think you know, if you fail, you can know, keep trying again. I mean, that's the, the strategy. The strategy I've used in the last few years to, to reduce drinking is is I only I, in the week I just drink Sentia, and I allow myself a, a, a 
glass or two of wine, you know, on a Saturday or a Sunday at the weekend. Um, so that's a, a, you know, that's a, obviously a, a bit self-serving for us as, as a company, but that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good strategy to to experience the alternatives, but also reduce consumption. I think the other point I would make about if you if you are if you are abstinent for the whole period of January, then you know that you must be a little bit careful when you start drinking again because if you had been a very heavy drinker, you probably wouldn't be, you were probably tolerant, and if you go back to drinking the amount you drank before, you could find you know you're more drunk and more in more danger. Um, because you've lost tolerance, and and that's that will occur over the course of a month or, or even less. So, so don't celebrate the first of February by getting really <laughs> boozed up because it, you know, it could actually be more dangerous then. Well, uh, thank you very much for this. This conversation has certainly been insightful, and uh, good luck to any listeners who are drudging their way through dry January currently. And if you're listening down the line, um, you know, take heed. Stop at the two before it becomes the 10 um, and, and stay in control, I guess. Thank you so much uh, for your time tonight, David. Lovely talking to you. And I just can I guess a little, if you're not sure about anything I've said, it's all in my book, which is called Drink? Question mark. So feel free to, uh, to peruse that and it'll tell you all those little tips again about how to help you control your drinking. And thank you and very much. Great talking to you. And a bit of reading is a, is a fantastic substitute for reaching for a drink when you are without company and looking for something to do. You know, that's a really, that's a really, really good piece of advice because it's so easy to drink when you're watching TV. Much harder to drink when you're reading yeah, your books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good point. <laughs> Thanks so much, mate. Good night. Cheers. Thank you.